Here we are. And you've got an episode for us. I got an episode for us. And if you didn't read the title, this episode is about residential schools. So this episode comes with a content warning because this is not a happy episode. Doesn't, uh, yeah, not happy at all. No, not happy. So if you are not interested um, in listening to that, this is just your warning now. Okay, I also want to talk before I dive into things that um, I just want to remind everyone listening that, you know, we're just delivering information as best we can, but that doesn't mean we think we're the best people to deliver all this information. Mm -hmm. So we're gathering information and we're telling you what we know and what we can find. But if you're interested in knowing more about residential schools or the impact that has on the Indigenous population of Canada, uh, you really need to be listening to different sources other than us, you know, the survivors of residential schools, people um, from those neighborhoods that can speak better to it than we can because we're just, you know, doing our best. Mm-hmm. And we're firm believers in getting your, uh, you know, information from multiple different sources. Yeah, we are definitely um, coming from a good place here and just trying to deliver the information as uh, we have understood it and, and relay it to people here. So, Caitlin, disclaimer aside, what have you learned? Okay, so I kind of uh, took the route of just learning about the history of residential schools and then uh, more specifically... Uh, Canada's history with residential schools. Um, Okay, so residential schools were originally church-run schools, um, and this was mainly Christian churches, so not just Catholic schools, but like Anglican uh, churches would run the schools, or United Churches, for example. So different types of churches, it kind of depends what church was in the region that kind of worked to just take over the school. That makes sense. Yeah. Um... But like I said, they're mostly all Christian churches. Um, and predominantly, uh, the indigenous children were removed from their homes and their families, um, usually against their will, and put into schools where they were forced to abandon their traditions, cultural practices, and languages. So this has been described as aggressive assimilation. Okay. Aggressive assimilation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, that was kind of the term used. And it's very clear. The term used when exactly? Like, when did that term first kind of get banned? Well, so we're talking like back. Well, okay. So aggressive assimilation, that kind of came after the fact. That's um, how we're describing it now. So they weren't saying they were trying to aggressively assimilate and they weren't even really saying the word assimilate. But in like the 1890s, when all of this kind of the government started to mix with residential schools, uh, the government documents make it very clear that they are trying to solve their quote, Indian problem. Yeah, I've heard I've heard that term Indian problem. Yeah. So they identified them as a problem how what for whatever reason they felt like they were a problem and they were trying to fix that problem okay um now some people have noted that um 
like, of course, their traditions had to be abandoned and their cultural practices and their languages because the church did not speak their language, did not know their culture and did not know their tradition. Mm -hmm. So some people say that it wasn't necessarily purposeful that their language, cultures and traditions were taken away. But just because how could someone not who doesn't speak your language Mm -hmm. teach you your own language? Right. So, but regardless, they were not able to practice their traditions, their culture, or their language while they were at these residential schools. And do you know kind of the age range here? Like, let's say five through 17? Like, what are the ages in Yeah, the I think it could have been even younger. Okay. Um, because... It was almost like a foster system, really. Like, you picked them up, and the kids stayed there. Sometimes, even through the summer, it was a boarding school, so they were not going home afterwards, and these schools were often really far away from their Mm -hmm. homes. And depending on what the church decided their home life was like, they would just be staying there sometimes for forever. So absolutely no connection back to their culture, no way to even keep the language alive, during summertime or yeah mostly no some did go home in the summer and i'll talk about this a bit later but there was a a pass system where technically parents could go to see their kids throughout the year um but they made that very difficult it wasn't freely come whenever you want Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they were really cut off and they were residential schools were purposely placed in places where the students couldn't go home at the end of the day because your school was so far away. There was no way you could make it back and forth. And it they did do that purposefully. Okay. Um, something else the Canadian government said when they started this was that residential schools were meant to kill the Indian in the child. I've also heard that. Yeah. Just completely inappropriate. Yeah. And like that is like... Like, that's written down. That is exactly what they were trying to do. Do you know who first said that? Uh, So the person who first said that was actually Duncan Campbell Scott, who is actually a Canadian poet and uh, civil servant. And he's widely known as uh, Canada's Confederation poet. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, he had some choice words. Yes, he really did. Um, Okay, so similar schools... uh, have been made all over the world. So Ireland has a history of residential schools, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, and the United States. So this is not uh, just a Canadian thing. Um, And they they obviously hoped with these schools uh, that it would help uh, Indigenous children learn the skills of the uh, newcomer society. And they say they were helping them make a successful transition into a world dominated by the strangers. Um, So that was their rationale. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Okay. Um, As far as Canadian statistics go, uh, these schools were operated for, uh, were in operation for 160 years and 150,000 Indigenous children attended them. 150,000? Yes. 
Okay. I almost thought it would have been higher, to be honest, but uh, yeah, I don't really know the populations. That is, like, a lot of these numbers are also kind of, like, rough numbers. We're going off of, like, records from the schools, and obviously mm-hmm. the records were... Poorly kept. kept. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's why we're sitting down here, actually. That's, <laughs> that's what we have. Um, something that is really uh, sad that I actually did not know was... So... Uh, when the Truth and Reconciliation report came out, and I'll talk about that a little bit more later, but it said that approximately 6,000 children died, which is like on a completely inappropriate amount, way inappropriate amount, way too many, but that is what it had said. 6,000 had died. What had said this, sorry? 6,000 was posted where? On the Truth and Reconciliation Okay report yeah that started in okay. 2008 yeah. so yeah their number is 6,000 actually they say somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 that's kind of their and, rough and this guess. is how many died in residential schools yes. according to the truth and reconciliation over the Act. 160 years okay so 6,000 of the 150,000 who attended uh but the truth is is that uh we can only account for a half of the uh, indigenous children who went. So that's 75,000. We know that 75,000 made it home in some way, whatever that wow. means. Yeah. And so that leaves 69,000 missing. Okay. So uh, they said these children ran away from the residential schools. They said they didn't keep very good records. They basically lost them. So that's 69, again, 69,000 yeah, that are lost or missing. This is not a number I've heard anywhere else. So you're breaking this news to me. Yeah. So that is, so people often are saying that it really was like a 50-50 because you either are the 50% that made it home or you are the 50% that is lost or missing, basically. And like, yes, I'm sure some did run away. I'm sure there is some problem with the records, but it's hard to believe that makes up 69,000. Yeah, it wouldn't. I don't know. Okay, just delivering the information. Um, so at its peak, there were 80 schools in operation. So um, that was the most in operation at one time. Uh, but there in total has been 130 residential schools across Canada, except for PEI, Newfoundland, and New Brunswick. What's going on with them? They did not have any residential schools. Were um, Indigenous children sent to ones further west, like consolidated ones maybe? I do not know. Hmm. I know they also have a like not the best history with their indigenous populations. And I also know people came to Canada in those provinces first. So I don't really know how that certainly might play a part. Yeah. Um, And also Nova Scotia is not mentioned in there. So I don't know. Maybe they all went to Nova Scotia. I'm not sure. (laughs) I don't know exactly what the story is there. Um, The last school closed in Saskatchewan in 1996. One year after our birth. Yeah, that's right. Um, 
And they started as early as 1830, but they weren't always attached to the government. So the churches started these schools on their own. And when the churches started the schools, because it wasn't attached to the government, it was not mandatory for the indigenous children to go to these schools. However, even though it wasn't mandatory, you can imagine you're talking about two totally different cultures that often didn't speak the same language. So even though it wasn't mandatory, that doesn't mean the kids were going there voluntarily, right? Mm -hmm. It still could have been whatever taken in some sort of way because uh, obviously not every piece of information was delivered perfectly in during that time but technically they were not mandatory so confederation was in 1867 and that is kind of right around the time that canada decided to make it a government thing how, how long were they up and running before that about 35 30 plus odd years. years. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, uh, just a little bit more background to Canada's history of Indigenous populations in general. In 1876, we had uh, the Indian Act. And the India Indian Act stated that the government was required to provide Indigenous youth with education to assimilate them into Canadian society. So the government decided that was their responsibility. Um, and also a number of colonial laws uh, that were aimed to eliminate First Nations culture in favor of assimilation uh, came into effect with the Indian Act. So it gave the government power to... Um, First Nations identity, political structure, government, cultural practice, and education. Uh, they restricted freedoms of these cultures and um, the rights and the benefits of the First Nations. So, for example, uh, it made it illegal for First Nations peoples to practice religious ceremony in various cultural gatherings. It even outlawed dancing off the reserve. And eventually, in 1925, wow. they outlawed dancing entirely. Pretty rough. Yeah. Right. I didn't necessarily, all the, like, that, remember yeah. all those details. Yeah. Yeah, me So, neither. not only were they picking up all these kids and sending them away from their family, they were also like, oh, Heavily by the way, things yeah, back home you as well. can't dance. Yeah. So, I... It makes me question the whole, like, the argument saying that, you know, they just couldn't teach the culture because obviously they had no intention of teaching the culture because they weren't even allowing the they culture to happen. They wanted to, to eliminate happen. it. Yeah, they weren't even allowing the culture to yeah. happen on the land they had supposedly given to them. In 1927, they added a new section to the Indian... Uh, the Indian Act that made it illegal for First Nations peoples and communities to hire lawyers <laughs> and bring about land claims against the government without the government's consent. So you could not hire a lawyer as a First Nations uh, person unless the government approved it. It's probably hard enough still today to do that. Um, that's really... Yeah. Like, okay. Well, it was systematic. Yeah. So from 1894 to 1920, that was when uh, First Nations children were required 
to tend residential schools. Uh, before it wasn't a requirement and um, like I had said earlier, they purposely placed them as far away as they could from these communities. Now, there was something called a pass system, which meant that Indigenous peoples could leave the reserve if they required a pass and a permit. Um, and they were only allowed to acquire that pass system if it was approved by the government. So you can imagine how much drama that is. Because first of all, how do you, like, only once in a while do they even come around to offer the pass system, and then you have to say you want the pass system, and then later you have to be approved, and that's even if they have any yeah, intention how, of approving Do you have any stats on how, how few were ever granted? I don't have any stats on that. But I can imagine it wasn't the easiest yeah. system in the world. I don't think they were just standing no, there handing out passes. They didn't want people to come and visit. Yeah. Um, the Indian Act also defined who was considered Indian under the law. I thought this was really interesting. So it stated that an Indian was any male person of Indian blood... Um, or any child of such person, or any woman who was or is or was lawfully married to such persons. They could lose their Indian status if they graduated university, married a non-status person, or became a Christian minister, doctor, or lawyer. Hmm. And that was in effect until 1961. Okay. So... 76 through 61. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, almost 100 years. So, I don't know. I just thought that definition was really interesting and that they could, like, lose their status. Yeah. So, like... Worst of both worlds is probably what ended up happening. That is really messed up. Um, of course, what happened is... If they graduated university and they lost their status, uh, they would often be subjected to racism. Um, but they also couldn't fit into their communities mm -hmm. either because they were not raised in their communities. So you're basically just giving someone not accepted by both sides. Then all of a sudden they're like in limbo. So yeah. also a very big problem. Um, okay, so another thing that's kind of interesting, uh, well, not interesting, but, you know, interesting in its own way about residential schools is that they were often underfunded, uh, which meant that uh, a lot of the time, the Indigenous children, they were not learning anything, they were just working, because they couldn't even keep all these children, uh, like, in these buildings unless they were working. So they're basically forced labor um, during this time because what, there was no, they didn't have any funds to fund the, the, the schools in education. any way. What, do you know what kind of labor they were subjected to? Uh, different kinds. Sometimes it was like for food specifically, whether they had to uh, make the food. Sometimes it was like um, gardening, landscaping, cleaning up all those sorts of like outdoor things that they had to do. And like, apparently this was particularly a lot in the winter when it was really cold. Um, those, it was mostly outside labor as well. Um, and the Canadian government scientists 
also performed nutritional tests on the students and they knowingly kept students undernourished to serve as control samples. That's sick. Yeah. Yeah, you'd like to think that that Canada just, you know, because me and you were Canadian, right? Like I want to I want to believe that um that we didn't do things like this because you know, just my only other examples like Nazi Germany and, and medical experiments that went on there. It's like do, are do we have to draw those parallels? Do we have to be similar to Nazi Germany? I know. It's looks like that's the case. Um I would like to, to be rooting for my country. You know, yeah. like even yeah. when you look at the history, that's why this is like a really hard topic for a lot of people to talk about because People are trying to, like, they don't want to believe that their country is the one that's capable of doing this, right? We often think that it, we're better than this. It could happen anywhere. And we're not better it, than and this. And it has. Yeah. Um, so, um, obviously, the system, the residential school system, uh, ultimately proved successful it mostly did its job, which was to aggressively assimilate because it, when everyone got out of schools, they felt like they couldn't fit back into their culture. They felt like they did not belong anywhere. Um, where it failed, of course, is like the what next. So you've removed the Indian from the child. Now what do you want the child to do? Because they're not just going to magically fit into their culture. So they really didn't play the tape all the way to the end. So the real legacy, of course, now of residential schools has been linked to, you know, post-traumatic stress, alcoholism, uh, substance abuse, suicide. Um, it, there's actually been a report that says that the Indian population of Canada has a mortality rate of more than double of the whole population. And in sub-provinces, it's actually more than three times. Oh, wow. Okay, so this is where the uh, discussion of intergenerational trauma comes in as well, because uh, lots of people like to think this only affected those who went to residential schools, but that is just absolutely not the reality because... Um, you know, if you went to a residential school, you felt like you lost your culture, then you have kids. Um, obviously, that's going to affect them majorly as well. If you suffered, um, you know, substance abuse because you went to a residential school, obviously your children are going to be affected by that and now your grandchildren. So the cycle of trauma from mm -hmm. the residential schools is being carried out through generations. Um, and a lot of people are talking about how um, in order to solve that, we really need to start talking about it um, because we really weren't talking about it in a meaningful way for a very, very long time. Um, yeah. So by talking about it, um, you know, it's possible for people to, you know, let go of some of that trauma or to, you know, find ways to um, move past the trauma. Well. You certainly hear a lot of a lot of voices out there just trying to say it's in the past, like it's it's ancient history, like forget about it, move on. But yeah. that certainly doesn't take into to account the intergenerational trauma that will continue, you know, throughout the next century. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like, sure, it maybe it was in the past. You're right. It 
didn't happen yesterday. Okay, so I don't know what your people's definitions of the past are. But sure, yes, happened in the past. It's history, whatever word you want to use to describe it. But the reality is, is that it's still affecting so, so many families and Indigenous communities today. So what are we going to do to solve that problem? We can't go back. We can't stop our country from implementing residential schools. But by saying, oh, it's in the past, it's history, blah, 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 blah. That's just diminishing the pain that is still going on from it because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're not willing to talk about it. Um, so, uh, of course, as I'm sure many people know, the residential school system was also, uh, we're faced with a lot of abuses from teachers, administrators, uh, church leaders. So uh, this includes sexual and physical abuse. Um, and that is has definitely been proven many times that multiple, multiple um, students suffered many forms of abuses while attending these schools, which of course is leading to a lot of these problems that we are seeing afterwards. Um Now, the reason, of course, that we're talking about this now for this episode is because um, at the Kamloops Residential School, they found uh, bodies of 215 children who had been buried in unmarked graves um, in around that school. And now they have found even more. And uh, so in Brandon, Manitoba, they found 104 bodies in Regina, Saskatchewan, 38, um, another 35 in Saskatchewan as well. And then just recently in Pennsylvania, they found another 180 bodies. So that is a total of 572 that have been found just in the last 10 days. Since since, they started looking. Yep. Since we decided we were going to start looking and... That puts Canada's total for just the last 10 days, really, at 392. Now, people are calling for all residential schools to be searched, which, like, of course, because, um, like, that's part of the healing that needs to happen. Um, And that's going to kind of lead me into my final talking point here, which is uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. TRC. So uh, this started in 2008. And the goal of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was to um, tell the truth. That's why it's called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So for many years, uh, the commission gathered 7,000 statements from residential school survivors through public and private meetings um, at various events across Canada from 2008 to 2013. Um, And then in 2015, they concluded with the establishment of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation and the publication of a multi-volume report detailing the testimony of survivors and historical documents from the time. Um, And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report concluded that the school system Uh, was cultural genocide. Now, some people are rightfully upset because we've already been through this Truth and Reconciliation Commission, yet we obviously did not try hard enough to find the whole truth uh, because we are still uncovering things that 
many people, well, at least I, had no idea mm-hmm. was out there. I could have never imagined there was 400 or around 400 now um, bodies. And that is just from yeah. the four places they have searched. That certainly comes as a shock to, to many people. And like, I mean, I... I'm sure there's a lot of truth in the Truth and Reconciliation Act, but it does make you instantly jump and think like, you know, to what extent were they willfully withholding more damaging yeah. details? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it is it is clear that the government was withholding a lot of information the entire time. So it is not the case that in when the last school closed in 1996, the government had no idea these were a problem up until 2008. That is absolutely not true. There's many reports, um, such as the Bryce report, and then later we have a Corbett up report. So one was in 1909 when Bryce went um, to Western Canada and he reported the mortality rates at residential schools. um, And he said they ranged from 30 to 60% over five years. So, Uh, and that's in 1909. So that is, no, not, yes, 1909. So they were well aware. He, that was, he was hired by the government to collect those reports. He delivered them back to the government. They were only made public in 1922 when Bryce, who was no longer working for the government, published a book on it. Okay. So, um, but again, the government obviously had that information. And then after his book came out in 1992, they sent uh, someone else to go visit the schools who basically found uh, the exact same information and still uh, the government did nothing about it. Um, When Corbett went in 1922, he actually found out that about 50% of the children had tuberculosis. Now, that is a big uh, theory of what they think happened to a lot of uh, the children who died is they talk a lot about uh, illnesses as they were living in really unsafe um, and unsanitary uh, conditions. I also was reading that um, the church or the schools, residential schools and the churches running them got money based on how many uh, students were there. So Mm. they would sometimes go and purposefully take sick kids and bring them to the residential schools to boost up their numbers to get more funding. But if you bring in a kid who you know is sick into an environment that is already overcrowded, unsanitary, bring and so down. on, a lot of them got tuberculosis. Is That was one of the main illnesses that was kind of passed around there. Um... The Truth and Reconciliation Commission concluded that it may be impossible to ever identify the number of deaths or missing children, in part because of the habit of burying students in unmarked graves. So I find it really interesting that, again, when this was made in 2013, they knew there was unmarked graves, yet yeah, no they, they one ever... they said unmarked graves. Yes, yet no one ever thought, or, well, I guess... Obviously, they thought, but chose not to go find these unmarked graves. Now, I actually, I actually don't know, but like, how were the the bodies in Kamloops discovered? Like, who who found them? Who was looking for them? What was going on there? 
Um, okay, so all I know is that they found them with ground penetrating radar. Um, so they were obviously looking. And the reason they were looking specifically in Kamloops, or part of the reason, is because um, it was the largest uh, residential school in the uh, Indian Affairs residential school system. It was in operation from 1890 to 1978. And it says at its peak, which they think is like the 1950s, it had about 500 students in attendance. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So they were kind of, you know, taking kids from their homes all over BC and I'm guessing Alberta and and taking them to Kamloops. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah. So uh, like I said, so far we have those four locations with those numbers uh popping up i mean we'd not be a little bit surprised if that number continues to grow as we continue this search which is a super i think a super important thing for us to do is to really actually get the truth and i also just want to say that i also think that something needs to be done is just a little bit more of an action plan in my opinion I know the government just loves to apologize and give what, money, but why What would an action is, plan look like for you? Well, you know, we still have uh, many reserves that don't have access to fresh water. We have many that don't have cell service or um, any way to get internet. And I think, like, why, why are we not fixing that? Why are we not fixing the problems that are in our the government's control to fix right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. The kind know? of things that continue to keep the mortality rate so high. Yes. Yeah, well. Exactly. And access to yeah. counseling service and, you know, the ability to, um, you know, learn about this history to be able to get past it, to mm-hmm. know. I mean, I, I am not affected by this, obviously, as a white person. Uh, so I don't know exactly what needs to be done, but I don't know why they're not in Indigenous communities saying, like, what exactly do you need? Give us a list. And instead of just arbitrarily throwing out millions of dollars to say we're doing something, we'll check off the list. Yeah. It would probably be a similar price to what they're saying they're going to spend. I think Justin Trudeau just announced that he's giving them another $25 million for this search and, you know, just going to helping um, Indigenous communities. But as far as I've read, there's no, like, specifics on that. So. Yeah. Well, ending ending the, bo- the boil water advisories, it's got to be, like, I mean, that's it's life and death right there. We live in Canada. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really hard be- to believe that that's happening yeah, somebody in doesn't have access to fresh water? Yes. Whole communities? We have, like, some of the best fresh water in the entire world, and we have people that don't have access to fresh water in our country. It's, yeah, it's, it's upsetting. Yeah. It really is very upsetting. So, like I said, this is the uh, story of residential schools as best as I could deliver it, but... Um, yeah, I feel like people should definitely be learning and, uh, trying to learn and, um, you know, trying to grow as best they can, because that's really the only way as a country we can reconcile with what we have done. 
Well, Caitlin, I, I do want to thank you for sharing your research here. And, and like you said earlier, talking about this more is is an avenue for, for you know, progress. Um, and it's not something we should be sweeping under the rug or pretending never happens. So I do appreciate you uh, setting us down here today for this. Yeah, no problem. Welcome. Okay, well, thank you everyone for listening. We are going to sign off. Take care. Thank you.